This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the CDC is undergoing a major transformation after a review found that its COVID-19 response was flawed. The head of the agency tells us how those changes are going. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. In August, the director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, called for an overhaul after reviewing the agency's pandemic response. Dr. Walensky, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. You said this, uh, for 75 years, CDC and public health have been preparing for COVID-19. And in our big moment, our performance did not reliably meet expectations. What happened? You know, we have a 76-year history at CDC, and yet we've never had to tackle a global pandemic, one that addressed and, and met almost every single one of 330 million Americans. We haven't had to tackle, while we've been tackling public health challenges for, for decades, we have never had to tackle one of the size, scope, and scale of COVID-19. So we have many successes that I think we could talk about, but I think also many challenges. And so what we wanted to do with this review um, is to really understand understand where we needed to be more nimble, where our systems and our processes got in the way of our being as nimble as we needed to be during COVID-19, and then to you know uh, address those issues um, and really become the agency that we need to be for the future of public health. But Dr. Walensky, what caused those problems to begin with? Was it management? Was it lack of funding? You know, I think first of all, we have, you know, we entered the pandemic in a pretty frail public health infrastructure, not really just at CDC, but across the country. So that certainly is one of the challenges. CDC is known as an exceptional scientific agency, and we will continue to be an exceptional scientific agency and deliver that science. What I really want to do in this next chapter in our future is to be public health action oriented. We have been well known to deliver terrific science. I want to deliver that science where we show our work along the way. We show our science when we know the, the answer, before it goes through peer review, before it necessarily gets published, when we know the answer has been corroborated by several different places where we you know, deliver that science so that it's timely, it is, we can communicate it to the American people. We're used to talking to scientists and public health officials. Now we really need to be talking to the American people who are interested in the work that we are doing. We need to be accountable for the work that we are doing, and we really need to be collaborative and work very closely with our public health partners. Well, it's been three months since you mm -hmm. announced this restructuring. How's it going so far? Um, you know, we have a lot of work to do and we've done a lot of work. Among the things that we um, will be rolling out is uh, reorganization of the agency, some elimination of some hierarchies and reporting structures so that we can have more visibility, more accountability to some of our core cross-cutting functions, our policy, our communications, our science, and then really to have a structure that um, really elevates our core capabilities, that of our data modernization if, uh, initiatives, that of our laboratory, that of our workforce. All of those things we need to have um, really in, in top-notch shape, um, that core public health infrastructure, because whatever it is, the threat, whether it's an infectious or a 
non-infectious threat, we need to have data, we need to have laboratory, and we need to have a workforce that's able to tackle it. Uh, are you facing any internal resistance to the changes that you'd like to make? Um, we're a large agency, we're 12,000 strong, um, and so I wouldn't say that everybody's opinion is the same. What I would say is that people are motivated by the moment. Um, they've been challenged by the moment. It's been hard for the last three years, and I think people really are motivated to be in a different place in public health. Um, we are doing a lot of work internally, both in the reorganization, but really in also addressing what do we need to do to be able to deliver our science faster. What I can say is that we now have examples of some of these successes. We have examples of how we've been able to deliver that public health action-oriented science, and we've been applauded for it. Um, we've put forward technical reports. We've put forward science before it's been published. We've been among the first to report on certain issues, and people have really appreciated our interest and our, our motivation to get that science out faster. Can you make these changes yourself, or are you going to need anything additional from Congress as far as funding or authorities? Um, so certainly our, uh, one of our challenges is that a lot of our funding is not sustainable. One of our challenges um, is that we have very specific line item funding rather than cross-cutting funding. So that is a constant challenge that we face. Among the issues that we're actually working on right now is um, all those things where we really do need congressional help. Um, so in addition to the funding issues, there are authorities that CDC does not have that other responsibilities agencies do have and we've put together um, an assembly of all of those authorities our data authorities there's an expectation that we will be able to provide data that we actually have no authority to require come into us. I wanted to ask you about data because that was part of the issue is the data that you relied on to come into you from the states how are you addressing that? So that has been one challenge. Through the public health emergency and COVID, those data started to come in and will continue to come in. Um, but in other public health challenges, for example, monkeypox, we did we started again. We again did not get the data that we needed. So um, we had a monkeypox uh, vaccine uh, plan in this country starting in late June. Um, and yet, we did not have the authority to collect monkeypox vaccination data. Um, and so we negotiated with 61, ju 61 jurisdictions over the following nine weeks in order to be able to get those data. So during that period of time until September 1st when those data really started to flow, we were allocating, working to allocate vaccine and distribute vaccine without seeing any of those data. Um, that is just not how public health should operate. And so those are some of the things, there's an expectation that we see those data. People want us to be transparent about the data and yet we don't get them ourselves. Do you think the agency is currently prepared for the next pandemic? Uh, we have we are actively engaged in being the agency that we need to be so that we are prepared for the next pandemic. We are well aware that because we had a COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 to 22 um, and you know that we continue to watch and are concerned about um, that that does not mean that we will not have another pandemic you know in the near future certainly I think people were concerned about influenza we continue to be concerned about pandemic influenza um, and so our job right now is to work quickly and efficiently so that we can be as prepared as possible for the future of public health we'll take a quick pause and then we'll come back great coming up on government matters more of our conversation with Dr. Rochelle Walensky director of the CDC we'll be right back We're back now with CDC Director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. 
Dr. Walensky, you know, some of the polls are showing that trust in the CDC among the American public is extremely low. What are you going to do about that? You know, I think one of the challenges during this period of time is how polarized we are um, as a nation and also that um, the science has been moving. So the science with COVID-19 has been evolving. This was a new virus that we learned about that we continue to learn and understand. Um, in addition, the virus itself is changing. So as the science evolves, so does the virus and then new science emerges from a new virus. Among the things that we need to do as an agency to regain that trust of, of America is to talk to them, to deliver to them, and to do all of the things that I, we just talked about, to say we are going to be more communicative, more collaborative, to deliver science in a more timely fashion. And I think that some of the actions on how we are able to do that, how we are able to deliver, how we are able to be the agency of the future is going to rebuild that trust. You know, COVID hasn't gone away. I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> Are you expecting another surge um, as we go into winter? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> to predict what is going to happen with COVID-19 has proved challenging for many people. Here's what I can tell you. Um, we know that respiratory viruses tend to thrive in winter season and, um, and in the fall. And so while we have not seen huge rises yet in case numbers, I think we have to be prepared for what may happen if COVID-19 provides us with more cases in the fall and winter as it has in almost every season since it's, we've seen it. And what about future variants? Is this virus going to continue to evolve? Are we going to keep going down the, the Greek alphabet? You know, here's where we are right now. For, for the first several sort of waves, if you will, we saw really different changes, new variants themselves, the, the wild type variant, the alpha variant, the delta variant, and then Omicron. What we've really seen since Omicron in, in November and December of last year is subvariants, all sort of small mutations of a single Omicron variant. So we haven't seen this huge shift to a new, to a new um, Greek letter, if you will, but we've seen the alphabet soup, if you will, of subvariants of Omicron. Um, what that does tell us is those subvariants may continue to emerge. Um, right now we are um, seeing more subvariants of the BA5 um, Omicron variant. Um, what the good news is right now is that our vaccine, our bivalent vaccine that we have right now is the first time ever that we have had a vaccine that tackles the subvariants that we have right now, the BA5 subvariant. And that bodes well in terms of the protection that we anticipate that we will get from it because we have this match of the vaccine with the variant that we currently have circulating, which is why I'm gonna put in my plug. It is so very important right now to go ahead and get that bivalent vaccine if you haven't already. So what is the CDC's COVID strategy for now and going forward? So we last February put out COVID-19 community levels. These are um, levels that are based on not just how much infection is out there in the community, which we recognize um, we have some measure of through PCRs, but not a full measure of, but also severity of disease. How much of, how, hot, how full are our hospitals of patients with COVID-19? How many people are coming in with COVID-19? And our, our metric in these COVID-19 community levels is not necessarily to measure every sniffle 
people, not necessarily to measure every positive antigen test, but really to understand are our hospitals overwhelmed? Are people coming in with severe disease? When we start to see that, we start scaling up our community levels from green to yellow to orange, and that's really where we, uh, we make recommendations to scale up our mitigation efforts, including masking. I want to ask you about other uh, viruses. You mentioned flu. There's also RSV mm -hmm. that has been overwhelming pediatric hospitals. What's going on with that? You know, what we have seen over the last several years is that um, we had mild RSV seasons, we had mild influenza seasons. When that happens, we did not have a lot of immunity in the population from RSV or influenza. We also have seen that vaccination rates for influenza have come down. Um, we have not had, we don't have an RSV vaccination. But again, this convergence of respiratory viral season with RSV and influenza and potentially COVID, as well as lower vaccination rates and lower baseline immunity because we've had mild seasons for the last several seasons, all of that can converge to have um, real challenges. And, and you're expecting a pretty bad flu season which has already started. Yeah, so what we've seen with RSV as well as with influenza is both that they are coming earlier. Um, so we usually don't see RSV until, you know, the winter, December, January, similarly for flu. Um, we have started to see in those areas that have been hardest hit by, by RSV, the south and south central region, that some of those regions are starting to come down in their RSV rates. That would be really good news. Similarly with influenza, much earlier than we generally see in the season, we haven't seen those, those um, come down quite yet. Um, but we have seen in the southern hemisphere, for example, where they get flu before us, that they had an earlier season but not a more severe season. So um, we are hopeful it doesn't always follow that that will be the case. We still very much recommend not only your COVID-19 bivalent vaccine, but also your flu vaccine to really prevent those hospitals from being overwhelmed and to protect you and your families. You know, monkeypox has faded from uh, the headlines. Is that no longer a concern in the United States? Um, it's faded from the headlines and we are still hard at work on monkeypox. So we are now in a place where we have about 25 cases a week, a day. Um, we are really honing in on those areas in the country, in fact, down to specific counties where we're seeing more cases so that we can do a lot of prevention work, a lot of education work in those counties. A lot of the hard work that is being done now is to, to increase vaccination rates in the hardest hit and highest risk communities. Um, and so while it's disappeared from the headlines, we are still uh, pedal to the metal, if you will, um, to really try and get communities at highest risk vaccinated. We do know that as we get the, these case rates are coming down, there is always a risk of reintroduction into these communities. And so we really wanna make sure that we have protection. Another quick pause and then we'll come back. Great. Stay with us. We'll continue our conversation with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky after the break. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're here with Dr. Rochelle Walensky, Director of the CDC. Dr. Walensky, there's an Ebola outbreak uh, happening right now in Uganda and I want to know how the CDC is involved and if this could face, if the United States could face a threat from this. Um, yeah, so this is a real challenge for Uganda right now. Um, 
we have active, we have an office in Uganda, uh, little known as CDC has offices in 60 countries around the world, and so one of them is in Uganda, and so I'm very grateful to have folks on the ground working with the Ugandan ministry, um, providing technical assistance. We've uh, deployed about two dozen people to Uganda to work in this effort. Um, they are working actively to tackle the challenges that they have on the ground. Still new cases um, are appearing, you know, every day or so. Um, what I will say is I think the risk to this country is low. Um, there are no direct flights uh, to, from Uganda into the United States, and yet people who have been in Uganda um, for the last 21 days are being funneled through five different airports around the country. They're being screened by CDC quarantine officers when they arrive. Um, we're uh, surveying for symptoms, and we're following them up for about 21 days. Um, we have active labs around the country who are scaled up to do uh, Ebola testing. Um, and so we are in readiness and preparedness mode. Um, while the risk remains very low, um, we want to be ready should we need to be. Well, something else that you're working on is racism, because mm. last year you declared that a public health threat. How is that? You know, what we were seeing and, and what I have seen through my career in infectious diseases is that um, people with racial and ethnic diversity around this country are often hardest hit with um, many of public health issues, many health issues, um, lack of access to health care, um, increased rates of comorbidities, and then as you saw early in the pandemic, increased rates of death and, and hospitalization um, in racial and ethnic minorities in this country. And that was something that we really wanted to tackle. I'm proud to say um, we declare that um, it, just 10 weeks after my arriving and over 200 public health departments are, were either with us or followed us. Um, so everybody I think is really on board to understand that we really have to tackle social determinants of health and racism um, to promote health in this country if we're all going to be healthy. And you did announce a new health equity office. Indeed. Tell us about that. So as part of our reorganization, one of the things that we really want to do is, is have this health equity office. And that really is not just along racial and ethnicity divides, but also to address issues on um, special populations, to address issues on um, uh, folks with disabilities, again, heavily impacted by this pandemic, and also to, affect it, to address issues in rural and frontier areas versus urban areas. One of the areas that we saw under vaccination, and we continue to see under vaccination, especially among children, is in the rural-urban divide. So this office is intended to sort of understand what communities need um, in, uh, regardless of the communities, um, special populations, to address their health issues. One of the things I really do feel strongly about is that we at CDC, I call it, bake, um, bake equity into everything that we do. So the intent is not necessarily to pull it out of all of the work that we are doing, but to inform our, our contracts and our grants um, and to understand the science as to how we can do better um, from an equity front across all areas of equity. You know, obviously you're, you're looking at a, a lot of diseases, a lot of um, not just infectious diseases. I wonder if you think Americans as a whole are getting healthier or are getting less healthy. What's the trend? Um, I think it's been a challenge. I think one of the things that we have seen, we've seen life expectancy drop over the last several years. We know much of that is related to the pandemic. We also know just from a vaccine standpoint that we have lost vaccination coverage. We've lost much of our cancer screening coverage during this pandemic. So we have a lot of catch up work to do 
on basic prevention interventions, on basic, um, you know, heading to the doctor, really, to get your blood pressure checked, all of that sort of overall health prevention. We lost during, we, we, had, we had made some gains. We had lost much of those gains during the pandemic, and we have a lot of work to do in making that up. Antimicrobial resistance, another one. We have a lot of catch-up work to do. What, what are some of the, th the big things that you're working on besides, obviously, COVID and, and, and those diseases? You know, um, we have, as you mentioned, we've talked about COVID and monkeypox and, and Ebola. Um, of course, we had a polio case in New York earlier this year, so we really do need to bolster um, immunization efforts around this country. And again, um, some of those areas that have been challenges before the pandemic, exacerbated by the pandemic, mental health challenges, um, opioid uh, use challenges, um, certainly chronic conditions like, like cardiovascular disease and cancer um, all fall within our purview. And you were, before taking over the CDC, you were on the front lines of COVID. Um, in Massachusetts, you were the uh, chief of infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. Tell us about that experience and how that informed what you're doing now. Um, so a lot of, the, I had done some research on, um, you know, vaccine delivery and COVID and the importance of not just how well it works, but how many people we get it to. Um, but one of the things I think that was really instrumental in my time there was seeing you know, seeing it evolve in the, on the front lines. How are we deploying testing? There was a lot of, um, we don't know how to treat said patient. There hasn't been science here. Um, never worry alone come together, um, seeing patients being, this was, you know, all of this was before we had vaccines, um, seeing patients and what it me means. I, I do remember, and this was really salient in sort of the racism issue, is um, saying to patients you should quarantine and then recognizing or isolate and recognizing they didn't have the capacity or the place to do so, um, that they needed to go to work to put food on the table was really, um, really salient in a lot of my experiences. Dr. Walensky, thanks so much for coming in and for being on the program. Thanks for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. 
Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.